We have a motto in the hospice where no patient dies alone. We will sit around the clock with them. And if a patient doesn't want me to leave their side, I won't. You know, I'll stay with them. This is Fernando Murillo talking about the time he spent working in end-of-life care. He is known for his caring, empathetic, and gentle manner. And within the hospice walls, Fernando has helped many, many people navigate their last days on Earth. Whether physically, through bathing and clothing them, or helping to provide emotional and spiritual closure, he sat by their side and held their hand as they took their last breaths. But this was not your average hospice, and Fernando, not your average hospice worker. So I didn't introduce myself. I'm a 43-year-old man. I was formerly incarcerated for approximately 24 years. While incarcerated, I I worked in end-of-life palliative care at California Medical Facility Vacaville for approximately five years. At 43, Fernando is light years away from the 16-year-old boy who entered prison on a life sentence. In fact, his dedication to growth and service caught the attention of California Governor Gavin Newsom, who in 2020 commuted Fernando's sentence and made him a free man. But for Fernando, his life's work of bringing the transformational gifts of hospice to prisons is just beginning. He also hopes to change the way we think about formerly incarcerated people as they re-enter society. It's culturally normal for people in our society to not befriend someone like myself because there's so much othering and preconceived notions about who we actually are. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser a show about hope, possibility, and change on the other side of pain. Hello, Fernando, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for welcoming me. There's not many places in life I've been welcome to, so I appreciate it. <laughs> you are welcome here, always. Thank you. Fernando grew up in Berkeley, California. His father was 16 years old, when he was born, and his mother was 21. And while he's clear that his parents had the best of intentions, the realities of their age and inexperience meant chaos and instability for Fernando, both at home and within his community. I grew up in an era that was primarily, you know, my neighborhood influenced by crack and the power that it had over the people that were addicted to it. I got to see firsthand what it was like for my community to deteriorate. You know, good, everyday, hardworking citizens becoming addicts. Watching how much law enforcement was able to come into the community and create like a police state. And that backdrop influenced like how the carceral setting was um, primarily comprised of people that look like myself. So. Can you speak to that a little bit more about what you were going through as a young boy growing up? Yeah. So um, like a lot of hardworking parents or single parents, you know, after my father left, I had very little supervision because my mother was always working and my father left at a very young age. So a lot of my primary influences came from 
adults that were available in the community, you know, male adults. And a lot of them weren't doing a lot of uh, law-abiding things or participating in, you know, productive activities in the community. So I was emulating what criminals were doing. This had a such an influence on not only the way that I thought, but the way that I acted, how I wanted to be seen. It shaped my identity. I was less interested in like performing well in school and more concerned about like survival and also um, how I was identified. You know, like I felt like I, I didn't have the words to say this at the time, but I do have them now is that I definitely wanted to be projected as somebody that was in control and that had power and that had some sort of um, autonomy over themselves, right? Because I felt like all of my circumstances were based on being powerless. So I wanted to like take charge of that, like through action. I was definitely uh, a young man that was um, <laughs> doing things in an unhealthy way. I was, I was very immature and I like the words to associate with my emotions and my feelings. So I acted quite a bit, you know, and, and that led me to get into a lot of trouble. So what were the emotions that at the time you didn't have language for looking back? I was very fearful of like how life would turn out day to day. I was, uh, I felt insecure about like how my household dynamics looked. I was insecure about like my poverty, not having uh, the ability to have meals, you know, secure meals every day. So I was, you know, food insecure. I didn't have the best clothing. There was times in my life where I had to wear my mom's shoes to school and that would lead me to get into fights, you know, when people would make fun of me about that. So, you know, I, I felt a great deal of insecurity, like having a younger sibling that was, you know, female and feeling the need to protect her because of predatory environments that we lived in. I felt a great deal of uh, stress knowing that my mom was at work every day and I, I had to be the head of the household. And I just didn't have <laughs> the developmental or tools to be able to do that. I was just winging it based on what I was observing in the community. So it was stressful. And so you said you don't have the language and the understanding of all of these emotions you just expressed. And so you would express them in action. Explain that. What actions, what behaviors? Let's say something happened in my home and um, I wasn't able to like address it or deal with it. Like if, if somebody said something to me at school that was totally unrelated to what was happening in my home, that was all I needed to start a fight to express myself, to like release the rage that I was experiencing inside for feeling so powerless I'd get sent to the principal's office. I'd get suspended or I'd go to detention. I'd get write-ups and I would lose any sort of like privileges in, in school, just being able to do things that normal kids get to do. So, so I want if you're comfortable, if you can share your journey to incarceration and I don't want to hang on there too long because there's so much ahead that is so rich, but by the time you were 16, you would be incarcerated Yes. for the next 24 years. 24 years. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the journey and what led you to being right. incarcerated for two and a half decades. First of all, like, I accept all responsibility for my action, but I have to like paint a picture of what it was like growing up as a person of color in my community and how 
society was designed to place us in these spaces. So, you know, like our community lacked a lot of resources. And what I mean by that is like there was limited opportunities for us to like excel and then move on to the next step of success and like in respect to education, employment, careers. So for myself growing up, I emulated people that I felt were successful. So I was definitely indulging everything that I felt would, you know, make me successful. And that was through criminal activity. I started stealing very young to meet the very basic needs of having clothing, food. The first time I was ever arrested was for stealing salami because I was hungry. You know, the second time I was arrested was for stealing shoes. Not because they were Michael Jordan tennis shoes or like something very expensive. I just needed a pair of tennis shoes and I just didn't have the financial means to get them. So, of course, as time went on, I looked in search for other means to meet my needs. And I started robbing people. I started dealing drugs. I started carrying firearms. I started becoming aggressive. And every time that I would get away with committing a crime, I became emboldened. I definitely developed a sense of like courage to continue to do it. It became normalized in my life, right? So I went from like observing this lifestyle and then being fully immersed in it to the point where law enforcement was very familiar with who I was and I felt like I was invincible. That ultimately led to me being viewed on America's Most Wanted as a 16-year-old kid. Eventually I was caught for a string of crimes that were violent, everything from carjackings to attempted murders to mayhem. Yeah, that's when I landed in prison or juvenile hall as a 16-year-old boy for some very serious crimes that affected people's lives. So, According to the law at the time, and because Fernando was still a juvenile, he thought he would be in prison until he was 25. But this was the 1990s, a time during the Clinton administration where laws were quickly changing. You may remember the introduction of those tough-on-crime bills. And who could forget the new term used by media and politicians to describe kids like Fernando, super predators. It was a dog whistle for people, young men of color, to be identified as something other than human. So it was easier for us to be sentenced to like some of the most outrageous times. So I received 41 years to life as a 16-year-old. I didn't even know what that meant. First of all, I didn't even know what life really was. <laughs> as a 16-year-old, never had the ex- you know opportunity to connect with what life could possibly be like in a healthy way or a productive way. I felt like before anything had the opportunity to start, it was already over especially with uh, the narratives. Like, I'll never forget listening to the State of the State Address by Pete Wilson in the 1990s, saying that the only time that he would ever let a life out of prison is in a pine box or in a body bag. So I didn't feel any degree of, like, hope that yeah. I would ever experience what life would be like. Yeah. So that was sort of like the framing of what society would do with people like myself. And uh, the reality was that I received a 41-year-to-life sentence for crimes that I committed at the age of 16. So at 16, you are walking in to prison... What were those early 
months, years for you as really still a boy incarcerated at that age? So there was a a wide range of feelings. The first one was like a feeling of reunification, like prison and jails for my people like me and my community is an extension of our communities. Like the people that we've been missing (laughs) in our communities for so long, they're present in jail. They're present in juvenile halls. The people that I went to school with and played sports with were there. So like there was a degree of like familiarity and reunification, but there was also the component of survival from like the very predatory aspect of like incarceration. And it was horrifying. I felt like this is how I am forever going to be defined, you know, for suffering, for hardships, difficulties, hopelessness, powerlessness, being marginalized, watching my peers that were extension of my community, their lives just simply like evaporate into nothingness. I had the opportunity to see the horrors of watching very talented people in these fishbowls, as I refer to them, you know, as prison, never be seen, never be heard. You know, I've seen some of the most talented writers, some of the most talented vocalists, artists in respect to like painters and actors and athletes. It was it was like depressing to watch countless people evaporate into the walls and the steel barriers of incarceration. And I was one of them. I felt like I had a lot of talents, but I didn't think they would ever be seeing or they were meaningless being in that environment. So it's difficult to like connect with what you're meant to do and what your talents are because they feel like they don't matter. Fernando spent the first 19 years of his sentence at various prisons in California. And then in 2015, he was transferred to a different kind of institution, a place called California Medical Facility, or CMF for short. CMF is a prison that takes people who are elderly, mentally ill, or terminally ill, in addition to having a general population of younger people. It is the largest hospital among California prisons and has many of its best clinical programs. And for Fernando, it was the first time in 19 years that his environment wasn't plagued with violence, politics, and gang activity. It was a huge cultural change, and it's where the sparks of the thoughtful, compassionate, self-reflective person inside of him would begin to emerge. Nobody showed up and asked me for my paperwork and asked where I came from and you know what was happening with the politics on the yard that I just left, so I knew it was different immediately. Walking to the dining halls, I seen that people had agency over themselves, that there was autonomy. This was something that was new for me. I had to learn how to like observe this and accept it. It was real cultural change. And I was struggling with where I fit in this environment because it was very new for me. And I was a little insecure about this because everything I was accustomed to in my past was not present. And so this allowed me to focus more on like education, employment, and eventually I learned about a space in California medical facility that had terminally ill people that were dying in a very compassionate and dignified way. I wanted to learn more about it but I was reluctant and unwilling to like 
have any sort of connection to it because I felt like it was too demanding. It was too stressful to fully immerse myself in that environment. And I just didn't feel like I was ready. So I actually avoided learning any more about the place. So I enrolled in school. I was in college and I started uh, taking classes for criminal justice, business, as well as psychology. So thoroughly enjoyed that. I lived in a single cell, which was the first time that's ever happened in my entire prison journey. And what that means is like, I lived in a cell by myself. So I felt like safe enough to start processing what happened to me during my adolescence, my young adulthood and, and my adulthood in prison. You know, I, the first time I felt safe enough to do that. I also um, started working in um, a place called healthcare facility maintenance, where I learned how to like clean up hospital settings. And this is where my hospice journey began. Fernando was now trained to clean and sterilize medical environments. This led him to step foot into CMF's hospice unit, which in 1996 became the first licensed hospice within a prison. It is a gold standard program in large part due to the peer workers who care for patients. One of those workers was a man named Kendrick Flowers. After getting to know Fernando, Kendrick believed that Fernando had the right energy and disposition to work as a caregiver. And he asked him very directly if he was interested. And my immediate response was absolutely not. No, no way. And I said this because um, I can see just from the visual aspect of human beings essentially disintegrating from their illnesses, going from perfectly healthy individuals to slowly, you know, eroding from their terminal illnesses was too much for me. It was difficult for me to watch. I felt like their experiences, they were like holding a mirror up to me of like what my inevitable end would look like, you know, dying in prison from a terminal illness at an advanced age. And it's not something I wanted to be confronted with every day. I felt like it was too difficult, but I wouldn't say this out loud. These are my private thoughts, but he was persistent at asking me like every day, you should come work in here, man. Like you could work with me. And he started sharing like the things we do every day and like bonding because I, I started viewing him as a friend, as a good person. And that I liked hanging out with and talking to, we had like similar experiences in respect to like, you know, our childhood and our prison journeys. And we're the same age. A month later, I agreed. You know, I finally told him, yes, I'm going to do it. And that came from a lot of self-reflecting in myself. I used to refer to this cell as like my flight simulator, where I'd go in there and practice being free, where I'd practice doing things that were liberating, not only internally, but externally. I know this sounds strange as a, a 35-year-old doing life in prison, but I wanted to challenge myself to do things that would be truly liberating, just in case the, the gates ever opened for me. But ultimately, like I just wanted to be a free human being, regardless of what side of the fence I was living on. So I read this, that you would close your eyes and sort of reconnect with these warm memories yes. and friends mm -hmm. and family and envision, you know, the outside world and that liberation. So we had a guest on the podcast, Dr. Edith Eager, who's a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor, and she did the exact same thing at Auschwitz. 
she would close her eyes and she would have all the women in the bunk close their eyes and she would share a recipe and that they were cooking and she would share and it transported them. Yeah. It really stuck out to me that you both used um, your minds in that way to free yourself in a sense and, and give yourself a possibility of a future. Yeah. Prison is not an easy place to be, but I, I, I learned how to liberate myself from something I can possibly never be liberated from physically ever. I felt like that was important for me to be able to survive and to be able to be functional and empathetic and kind and just being completely human with folks in a inhumane environment. So I could definitely relate to the story you just shared with me about the woman being in Auschwitz because, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, incarceration can strip you of, but your imagination and your willingness to like close your eyes and liberate yourself from, you know, those difficulties can never be taken away. So you're in California medical facility. Things are changing. You're being introduced to these people who see something in you. You discover, as you said, this place where people are dying. Yeah. You know, I read about the occasional root beer floats would oh, be yeah. delivered and there mm -hmm. was clean sheets and there was quilts on the bed and a tropical fish tank. But it really visually set the stage for the humanity, yeah. the dignity, the impact our spaces have on our well-being. So you are reluctantly <laughs> now becoming a hospice worker to walk the final stages of life and death and dying with your fellow inmates. Yeah. So how was that in the early as you're observing all of this and what becomes your day-to-day -day there? Well, first off, walking into the hospice is like what I'd equate to like walking through an angelic pathway, but the actual physical location of X corridor is this very well manicured hallway that's being waxed and buffed. And the neon lights give it like this really angelic like glow. And during this pathway that leads to the actual door, the exterior door that leads to the hospice, there's like almost like a backdrop that sets you up for what's to come, like just walking down that hallway. Once walking through the door, it's like a transformation that happens in respect to uh, going from one environment to another. Hospice is more reflective of normalization in respect to environment. It's more reflective of what you'd see in like a, a hospital in the community. There's a multidisciplinary team that's present where incarcerated people that are highly trained to administer end-of-life care are working side-by-side -side with correctional health care officials and um, actual correctional officers. They have a common goal of providing compassionate end-of-life palliative care to terminal ill people, and it's mind-blowing to watch that this is present in an actual prison, in a space that that most people would be blown away to like see. There's a sense of anonymity working back there because not many people know what happens back there there's definitely the operational norms of you know what happens in a hospice you know where vitals are taken meals are documented on how much the patients are eating 
and we meet with the nursing team in the morning just so like we're all knowledgeable of what each patient is experiencing from day to day and there's 17 patient beds in the hospice and uh, after the assessment we essentially start showering patients we start changing beds sheets clothing taking people outside to the patio so they can get fresh air i'll assist nurses with uh, wound care diaper changes helping people get ready for like attorney visits family visiting where their families come to visit them and we assist with haircutting hair grooming shaving you know i had a patient that was about 32 33 years old his name was ryan lee hayward he had als and even though he was nonverbal, he was one of the most funniest people that i've ever taken care of in the hospice and I would help brush his teeth. I'd help him go to the restroom. I'd help him shave. And he would always have some sort of joke for me. It was very clear that he was making jokes, you know, with his movements in his hand. And he was a great comedian. And um, that's like an example of like one patient that I would take care of that would occupy so much of my time because he would only like want myself or one other person to take care of him. So like during the course of the day, a couple patients could preoccupy a lot of your time. But like we were very strategic on who would be available throughout the hospice based on the patient's needs. It was gratifying, rewarding, but also very challenging to know that there there was a patient that was really attached to you. And as their health was declining, your presence was needed more and more. So a day for me can actually be two days. I could be in the hospital for like 48 hours at a time, 36 hours at a time, 32 hours at a time. Time really is, doesn't mean much back there. The needs of the patient is the necessity. That's, that's where the priorities lie. And sometimes when a patient is passing and while they're sitting vigil and like we're sitting vigil with them in their last 72 hours of life, we have a motto in the hospice where no patient dies alone. We will sit around the clock with them. And if a patient doesn't want me to leave their side, I won't. You know, I'll stay with them no matter how tired I am or how much I want to go to sleep. I'll sit with them while they're taking their last breath. So the day-to-day operations there are difficult, but the reality is, is that we're just extending our humanity to some of the most vulnerable citizens in our community. Coming up after the short break, we discuss how death, becomes a great equalizer within the walls of a prison setting. Back in a moment. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For today's episode, Fernando chose none other than the Humane Prison Hospice Project. Their mission is to transform the way prisoners die by training those who are incarcerated how to provide emotional support and hands-on care for their dying friends behind bars. You can find out more about their work at humaneprisonhospiceproject.org. If you find value and inspiration in All the Wiser, I hope you'll consider supporting the show by becoming a member. You will receive early episodes, ad-free episodes, and bonus content 
like the video of my conversation with Fernando. We'll also have quarterly Zooms where you can meet me and the All The Wiser team, and we can meet you. To learn more, click on the membership link in your show notes or head on over to allthewiserpodcast.com. I know not only the physical environment changes. In one of the articles, they were talking about death being this great equalizer within those walls. And the relationships change because all of the mental divisions of race, of all of these, no longer existed, it sounds like. That there you were together, helping bathe, cutting each other's hair. So it wasn't only the environment, but certainly the humanity, the connection, the relationships. What was that like for somebody who had been within the prison system and lived for decades watching that division? Right. I felt like I was rediscovering my humanity. The quote, death is a great equalizer, came from my good uh, friend and younger colleague, Kavian Lyman. So many of us in the carceral setting, whether we're incarcerated or work there, like play this character. We wear this mask, but what lies beneath the mask is rarely revealed. And that's the reality of who we actually are. So we were actually working in an environment, living in an environment in this hospice where people had the opportunity to take their masks off and feel safe. They felt like they can be vulnerable. And it was almost like a superpower to be human, to wear your heart on your sleeve and to connect with people in a way in which they can see like this was the inevitable outcome about the fragileness of our existence. So it was powerful. It still is. I'm not there anymore, but you know, the tradition continues like this enduring and people are coming from the outside world and want to learn more about it because they are seeing these displays of humanity happening in such an inhumane place. So it's, it's significant. It's worth talking about. It's important because I think humans do such a good job in denying their humanity. They master it. But that's an environment where people get to be seen in an authentic way. And it's so meaningful. As people have the opportunity to look their mortality in the face and be confronted with it and know what their responsibilities are as a person. And that's to be kind and respectful and compassionate. And that's just with themselves. And they have the opportunity to display that with other people feeling safe doing so. So I think there's so much power in doing that. And I feel like that influences so many of us, like when we leave that environment, to treat people the way that we feel like we would want to be treated. And just know that like we're going to have mutual and similar outcomes in respect to like the ending. So why wouldn't I treat you with respect now? Why wouldn't I be compassionate with you now? I may never see you again. And I want to make sure that the interactions we have are, are healthy I get to value your humanity like while I come in contact with you. And I feel like there's a great responsibility in me in doing that now. After like having this long experience of watching people continuously pass, I know what it's like to zip a body bag up over and over and over again. So I, I, I'm not going to wait to the end to be kind to people. So I just do it every day now. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense. I loved everything you just said so much. So... 
you were known for your great tenderness, your great kindness that you showed with all of these patients, standing in the shower with them, getting the water temperature just right, telling them off, putting their socks on, and just sitting next to people, as you said, and holding their hand so no patient would die alone. And you said something beautiful in connecting it to your past and the reconciliation of your past, this idea that you were, in fact, giving the thing you most needed as a child, but also an opportunity to heal from your past and the things you had done that caused suffering. So share with me that connection of these two chapters in your life and how they relate to one another. Yeah. There's so many commonalities that people in the carceral setting have in respect to like the neglect they experienced growing up, um, the necessity to like experience something that's very universal to human needs. And that's somebody communicating to the child that never received the hug that they deserved or the child that didn't always have the meals that they should have had or the opportunities to just be a kid. And I, I communicated to that need when somebody would come to the door, you know, regardless if they shared that with me or not, or if, even if they experienced that or not. So when it comes to the intimate aspect of like trusting us enough, like not only sharing what they need as a person, but opening up about the things that they've been reluctant to share I felt was a currency that would allow us to connect on a deeper level. I would summon that child quite often that was within. I'd communicate to him directly. I was okay with displaying that tenderness and just, you know, providing a resource that was missing for so long in the lives of the people that would come in contact with us. You know, I was all too familiar what it was like to sit in some of the most uncomfortable places in the prison setting and just know what somebody needed. It was that kind word and that kind intent and that respectful delivery and the welcoming that they possibly never had anywhere else to let them know that they were safe as well. There's very few spaces in the carceral setting where people feel safe. That was something that I was very focused on, making sure people felt safe, respected, loved, and cared for in our environment. I'm curious, um, as you said, the humanity, the heart of who these men were really comes to surface. What were some of the things, the wishes, the regrets, the observations, the hopes that stuck out as you sat with, I imagine, dozens of patients dying? Whew. It's loaded. So I'm going to say one of the greatest experiences I ever had in the hospice was taking care of a 31-year-old man named Michael Collins. He was from Compton, California. He had stage four bone cancer. 
he was incarcerated for a very petty offense. I mean, I just don't feel like his sentence matched his crime. I mean, he committed a DUI. He was an army veteran. And he was uh, dying as a young man in our care. And I'll never forget him and the value that I, I got from him because he was so kind and polite. He was so accepting and he was so grateful for everything that he was experiencing there. He never once had any sort of um, complaint and he had all the reasons in the world to complain. He had all the reasons to be dissatisfied with his circumstances, but he was just so grateful for not only the environment he was in, but the people that were taking care of him. And he'd tell us every day how much he can feel the love. He can feel the, the sincerity of the people that were taking care of him. But just watching him smile and feeling a great deal of fulfillment from the care that he was experiencing, like really resonated with me in a very emotional way. I had so many feelings taking care of him. Like I felt upset. I wanted to be angry for him. I was advocating for her every, every day. He'd tell me, Fernando, just relax, man. Like everything's going to be okay. He'd tell me, put it in God's hands, man. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, I'm advocating for you, man. Like I want you to get the F out of here. I want you to be in the community. I want you to be with your 10 year old son. He's like, it'll happen when it happens. And it's rare that I, I meet anybody like this, you know, and he taught me so much about patience and gratitude and faith and love. And it was all sincere. So with all the advocating <laughs> that we were doing when he wasn't around us, he was eventually granted a compassionate release. And during this time, he was like, man, this is great. Get to go home and see my son. He's 10. He's the love of my life. And we did everything we could to like make sure that we can keep his attention, that we could keep him focused that we can keep him happy, well-fed, and upbeat so he can get to experience freedom again. And this is difficult because of the bureaucracy of what happens during the compassionate release process. A lot of patients die after they get approved for the process before they go home. You know, they actually die in our care while even after they're approved because the, the process takes so long. So we knew this. We're very well aware of it. And we fought really hard to get him home. And I'll never forget the last night he was there. I was sitting first watch with him. What that means is I was sitting with him overnight. And the next morning, an ambulance was going to pick him up and take him back home to Southern California to be with his, close to his family in a um, brick and mortar hospice near his community. And that night, I thought he was going to pass. His respiration was not well. It was very low. He wasn't verbal. The nurses were very close to putting him on vigil. And I was like blaming myself for like his condition. And I'll never forget this at four o'clock in the morning, he opened his eyes and he was like, he used to call me Nandito. He's like, Nandito, I'm hungry, man. I was like, I was so elated that he opened his eyes and that he said this. I gave him a kiss on his forehead and he gave me a hug. And I said, man, we're going to get you home this morning, man. I was exhausted. I didn't want him to see that. But he still, in, in this stage of his life, he was still grateful. He was so kind and he just thanked me for everything. And he says, I can't wait to see my son today. 
I said, I can't either, man. I learned he passed away the very next day after he got home. But, I mean, we were so happy that we were able to get him home, even if it was just for one day. And I have to mention his story because the level of gratitude that I experienced from like his presence taught me more about myself than anything else. You know, he was the proverbial and, and literal like mirror, you know, holding it up for me, for me to get a good glimpse at who I am as a human being. You know, like his words influenced me to do so much self-reflection about who I was as a human being. And it wasn't just me, like all of us as a collective spoke so much about him after he left of like what we needed to do as people and also the level of care that people you know deserved from us because of him. Like he was, he was special. You know, the other thing of the piece of healing was this idea that many of your colleagues who were also incarcerated, who were caring for the patients with you, it was this new relationship with death that in the past, there wasn't a lot of value on life or death or what it means to die. And now where you are tenderly holding the hand of people as they die, right. which is to me so beautiful. Right. So beautiful that all of you, the, the patient, that the caretaker were given that gift together, right. especially those who were incarcerated because they had taken someone's life mm. to have that connection in such a, I would imagine, healing, cathartic way. Yeah. I feel like there's such a disconnection in like the human component and like when crimes are being committed, there's so much othering that happens, so many generalizations. People are referred to as everything other than a person. But when there is an actual intimate interaction with somebody, I feel like that component is not no longer present for me or I can hurt somebody. And, and now I want to like get to know you as opposed to like harm you. Having that experience enabled me to understand that people have these experiences that are so similar and they're worthy of respect and compassion and relatability and love. So that's just my personal take on it, you know? I so. love it so much. So... In 2018, a New York Times journalist, who's now your friend, Suleika, is working on an article about this very thing we're talking about, this care that is happening in this hospice wing in Vacaville. Did you have initial thoughts when you were asked to participate, to be interviewed by a journalist? Yeah, I didn't care. I didn't care about talking to people that were journalists or anybody from the outside community because I felt like this is something that not only myself, but a lot of people in the carceral setting feel like they're just there to exploit us for their benefit. But when I was interviewed by her and we talked, I was like, you know, this person really cares. And then she shared that she had cancer, you know, and that she was in remission. And I was like, huh, there's a connectivity there between your experiences and what we're currently doing. I can feel the sincerity from her, you know, like presence there and her wanting to tell the story of what was happening in hospice. 
And then the rest is history in respect to like what she wrote. I mean, the ripple effects from that article is a, one of the reasons why I'm sitting here right now. And then what I mean by that is like, I, I shared with her a couple of times I, about how anonymous we were, how invisible we were. Like we were like ghosts. I felt like my prison uniform was, you know, my costume of inferiority. You know, like nobody sees me when I have this on. So the New York Times article is published and Fernando is now being seen by many, many people. His name and his story were no longer invisible, nor was the magic that was happening within the space. One of the people who reads the article was none other than California Governor Gavin Newsom. And in 2020, Fernando receives a phone call from the governor's office that would literally set him free. It was November 10, 2020. It was the height of the pandemic. People were, um, they were uh, sheltering in place. So I was notified by a wonderful correction officer. His name is Officer Shans, who worked in this area in the prison called B2. Officer Shans comes and gets me and says, Marillo, you got a phone call on B2. And he's smiling. He has this big smile on his face. I had no clue what was going to happen. So I walk upstairs and we uh, arrive in this room, which is like very institutional, very 1950s, you know, asbestos and plague walls with cork boards and, and just a desk and a phone. It looks very strange. It looks like something from the X-Files. So I sit down and he has a post-it on the phone, a post-it note with a number. So he dials. So someone on the other line, you know, uh, picks up. He's like, have a seat. I'm like, sure. So he's like, I have Marillo here. Are you guys ready? I'm like, what the heck is happening right now? So the person on the line is like, yeah, we're ready. Officer Shans hands me the receiver and says, I'm going to step out of the room. Wait till I step out before you say anything. And I'm like, this is super odd. This is so odd. And I'm telling myself in my mind, like I have so many responsibilities today. I need to hurry up and get back to the hospice and perform my duties because every moment that I'm not in the hospice, somebody else is picking up the slack for what I'm not doing. So, so I pick up the receiver and um, I'm like, hello. And the person on the other line is like, hey, how you doing? They're like, this is the governor's office. Do you know where we're calling? I said, no. There's like, Fernando, we want you to know that we're, we're going to release you. I said, could you say that again? And who are you again? This is the governor's office and we're going to release you. And I asked him a third time to say this again. They said, look, man, you're going to go home. You don't have to go to the parole board. You know, we're releasing you. And I was quiet. I was processing in my mind, like, what was really happening? So they said, hello, because <laughs> I was quiet for a long period of time. I was like, yeah, like, how do you feel? And I was very, I was very present in the moment. And I didn't cry. I was so shocked that I didn't cry and that I didn't display any sort of emotion. And I told them with a great deal of clarity that nobody is ever going to be released from this institution that's going to do the things I'm going to do. You know, I, I, I <laughs> I'll never forget that moment, right? Because... <laughs> Like I, I knew my responsibilities. <laughs> I, I knew what I had to do. <laughs> um, sorry about that. So I'll make a movie reference really quick. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget uh, that there was a movie called Saving Private Ryan. And these, these troops were assigned to go pick up this guy because two of his previous brothers were killed in combat. And when they were coming to get him, they were like, you better do something special you know, in life, if we're going to come get you to bring you back, 
you know, like, I don't want to just be out. I don't want to just cross the threshold of, you know, incarceration and be like, oh, that's it. You know, like m my life is set. Like, like I've accomplished everything I've ever wanted to accomplish. So I was like, no, I, I have work to do. You know, I have to pave the way. So, yeah, I was just very connected. You know, uh, there's a lot of people I put in body bags. And, yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to be able to live for them. And for the kid, you know, that, that never had the ex opportunity to experience life. So, yeah, I think I'm on the right track. You're doing it. <laughs> I think I'm on the right track. Sorry for getting emotional there. So It's, it's incredible. And you're honoring that in such a, such a big way, such a yeah. real way. So I want to get to that, right? You make this commitment to yourself. Yeah. It sounds like you just knew. Like I'm walking out of here and and I've I've work to do. Twenty four years is a long time. Yeah. What is it like to walk out and be in the world? It was like every Christmas that I miss in my life was like present right there in time. Like it was like not enough time in the day for me to open up all my presents. The joy was endless. Like it was just so wonderful to go from the extreme sensory deprivation to extreme sensory overload. And I had to learn like, how do I manage this, right? Because it's it's easy to get lost, right? And consumed with like the joy of being liberated. But for some reason, as like a 41 year old, I wanted to manage that. I wanted to make sure that I'm able to identify what's happening in the moment and not be too consumed and overwhelmed by it. So like I was not only managing the experience, but I was focused on like what needed to happen next in respect to like reintegration. And that comes from putting perspective that people have been living an entire life before I reentered the community and now I'm reentering their lives. So I need to figure out where I fit in. But not only that, I was mindful of like discovering my identity as an adult in the community because I didn't know what it was. And I know what it was like to be a child you know, in the community, a young adult committing crime in the community or an adult in the carceral setting, but not the identity of a man, you know, in the community as a free person. It's like I was managing all these things in my mind at one time and it was like somewhat overwhelming, but absolutely grateful to be out. I wanted to eat everything. I wanted to touch everything. I wanted to walk through a grocery store and look at every aisle. And I wanted to see people move see how people lived. And I wanted to learn what it was like for people to have technology as an extension of their life, because this is something that was foreign to me. I wanted to see how cars moved, how people spoke to each other, and what people liked, slang, everything. I just wanted to learn. I felt like, I felt like a visitor from another planet. You know, like I didn't want to share much about my world. I want to learn about yours. So I was just researching and studying everything because this was new for me. And like I mentioned, I didn't want to share anything about the planet I came from because that was terrible. I wanted to discover a new world. And that's what I was here to do. And I still am. So that day was phenomenal. So you talked about this, right? Who, yeah. who am I in the world? What is my new identity? You would continue this work of compassion, 
of empathy, of going back to the very place you had been confined, working in prisons. So what are you doing today? Your profession sounds like the wrong word because it's your your work, your impact. Sure, but yeah. where are you today with that? What are you doing right. to honor that commitment question. you made to yourself? Yeah, so right now I am my primary employer is Humane Hospice. And in the last few months, or it's been almost a year now, we've been doing some module curriculum design because our intent is to go back into the prison system and train residents to be able to, to administer end-of-life palliative care in a hospice setting. Our goal is to go to California Medical Facility and train as many people as we can with the module curriculum that we currently have, and to also go to a women's prison called CCWF in the Central Valley and provide them the training that they need to administer end-of-life palliative care because the women's facilities in our state don't have any sort of end-of-life palliative care services training or brick and mortar location for women to go when they have terminal illnesses to pass away. We have the manuals completed and we're going to California Medical Facility next week to start this training. We believe that we'll be introducing a skill set that the residents and the incarcerated people could bring out to the community and be certified in providing end of life care. And as you can see, like from where I'm currently sitting, that it helps residents out to not only develop a deeper sense of compassion and like caring for their fellow residents in the community, but also um, having a skill for employment when reentering the community. So Humane Hospice is like committed to like get this program rolling and take it to the prison system so we can um, introduce these training modules to the folks incarcerated. So You're the um, fourth person, all men, that I've interviewed who spent decades being incarcerated. All men of color who were incarcerated as boys. Some of my favorite guests, some of my favorite people, one has become a dear friend. And it's just, it's a privilege. It's a true privilege. And your voices in the world and your stories, thousands of people will listen to this. And I believe it makes a difference. But um, yeah, talking to you guys, having you free in the world is, it's amazing. Yeah. It feels good too. Yeah. <laughs> it feels good to dip my toes in the sand at a beach. Yeah. And comb my son's hair in the morning. He has long, curly hair. Listen to him call me daddy. It's like one of the most rewarding sounds I've ever heard in my life. Spending Mother's Day with my mom in the park. And like, that's what life's all about. You know, walking to the farmer's market with my pops, you know, like, you know, he had a stroke last February and he's doing remarkably well now. Like those moments like that make life wonderful, you know, um, you know, coming down here and, you know, spending time in Southern California and just enjoying life is, is wonderful, very meaningful to me. Now life's been wonderful. It's been great. And I appreciate it. I don't take, take it for granted at all. So of course it's not without its challenges. I have to be honest, like people like myself, it's almost against the law to have housing. It's almost against the law to have a job. And I have to say that because I, the greater community needs to be aware that people that re-enter the community from the carceral setting are essentially being told no to, in every aspect of life and respect, like the aforementioned things I, I just talked about, housing and employment. And that's what people need to survive out here. That's what need, people need to live out here. So it's very difficult to obtain those two things as a formerly incarcerated person. 
And just think about all the applications, right? That people have to fill out to get a house or get an apartment. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Have you ever been incarcerated? And if not, you know, like there's background checks that are done and a lot of landlords and property owners are not really willing to allow someone that's formerly incarcerated to live in their properties or to buy a house or to go to bank and get a loan. Like those are very difficult things for formerly incarcerated people to to obtain. So I have to make sure that I say that because once again, I am representing a lot of people that I left behind and I want to share some of the things that have been difficult for me to experience. And I know it's kind of it's somewhat universal. So you just spoke to that after serving all this time, all of these barriers everywhere to create a life, to live a life. Yep. New walls, right? So getting the loan, the apartment, buying the house, getting the job, all these things, all of the societal, the systemic, the structures, right, that exist, person to person, does a fear exist when you form a personal relationship? You're at UCSF with a colleague or dating, falling in love, that if they know my life story, I'll be rejected? Absolutely. Yeah. So like in the community, I don't introduce myself. Like my name's Fernando. I was incarcerated for 24 years. Nice to meet you. That's just not what I do. And I'm very mindful about who I share my story with, how I share my story, because I know that there can be a reluctancy and there's such a stigma behind befriending somebody like me because it's culturally normal for people in our society to not befriend someone like myself because there's a lot of othering and preconceived notions about who we actually are. I had a conversation with somebody in my neighborhood recently about what life would be like for them if they introduced themselves about the worst thing that they've ever done in their life. Hi, my name's Gabe and I'm a, I've cheated on my wife or 13 years, you know, like how would life really look like if yeah. we were to introduce ourselves by the worst things that we did? But that's what it's like for an incarcerated person, regardless of who I am now, how I define myself, what my character is like as an adult. The reality is, is I'll always be defined according to society's norms by what I did as a 16 year old boy. Yeah. And that's where the fear sets in. That's where the anxiety comes from. So it's challenging. So you spoke about your relationship with your mom and dad, spending yeah. Mother's Day at the park. You're also a father. Mm-hmm. He is so cute. <laughs> that hair. I saw the picture of you two together. Yeah. The generational healing, the generational change for his upbringing, for his experience. What does that mean to be a father to your son? It means everything. It means I get to be the dad that I always wanted. I get to be the adult that I needed as a kid. My son is the most kissed kid in the history of kids. He's so spoiled. And what I mean by that is um, he has a dad that's consistently with him, playing, taking him to the parks. I introduced him to to Disneyland on his second birthday. I just, like I said, I spoil him. But it's great to be a dad. It's I feel like I have a high level of responsibility to like be present for my son. And I love it. I love the responsibility. I love watching him develop. I will I love watching him feel safe and happy, smiling and you know, doing what normal two year olds do, you know, destroying my house. I love it.
So what are your hopes and dreams as a free man creating change in the world and for yourself? It's a, it's a good one. Well, first of all, I hope to one day, you know, this is going to sound selfish, one day be able to obtain a home in which my son could grow up in, an actual house. That's something that actually keeps me up at night. That's like my hope and dream, <laughs> just so I can provide him like a sense of like stability. You know, my dream is for him to grow up in a world where he can be himself without fear of like judgment. I want him to be able to grow up and feel like he can express himself without fear and love who he wants to love and love the way that he feels is appropriate. And that's the hope that I have for my son. What do you hope people take away from your story? I hope that people could take away from my story that, that it's okay to look in the mirror now and accept who they are and know it's okay to live and don't wait till it's too late. So I hope that people, when they hear this, they can do some self-reflecting, self-assessments, and know that they're worthy of living right now, regardless of where they're at. You know, and assess that survival is not living. It's survival. There's a fundamental difference between the two. It's okay to live. I'd encourage people to do so. You are awesome. I'm grateful that you're here, that I get to play a part in sharing your story. And I think there will be a ripple effect of good in the world because of you. So thank you. I hope so. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. <laughs> All right. As of today, California Medical Facility and the Humane Hospice Prison Project are piloting the training that Fernando helped develop. They hope to be able to offer this training to other prisons across California. I hope you found as much wisdom and value in Fernando's story as I did. Author John Steinbeck once wrote, there are some among us that live in rooms of experience that we can never enter. I'm so grateful to Fernando for giving us a glimpse into some of those rooms. And I hope, in turn, that you have learned more about your own humanity and ways you might share it with those you know. A special thanks to Susan Barber and the Humane Hospice Prison Project team for introducing me to Fernando and his story. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And that was John LaSala, our editor and composer. But our associate producer is Tara Daigle. That's right, Erica. And that just leaves us with our fearless host, Kimmy Culp. That's me. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.